Well, good morning, everybody. It is great to see you back here at the Vista. If we have not met before or if you just haven't seen me in so long, you forgot who I am. Uh, my name is Austin. I serve here as one of our lead pastors. And we are so glad that you joined us here today at the Vista. Uh, a little bit of housekeeping as we get started. Uh, we obviously have a few more kiddos in the room here today than we normally have because we haven't started our Vista Kids programming yet. But instead of seeing that as like an inconvenience, we see it as an awesome opportunity to worship today with our kiddos in the room, just like Jesus did. You might remember there's this great story in the Gospels where uh, Jesus' disciples, they're trying to keep some unruly kids away from Jesus because they're worried that the children will bother Jesus. And Jesus sternly reprimands them. He says, hey, you guys chill out, you little self-appointed bouncers and bodyguards, and let them kiddos come to me. You know that the kingdom of God belongs to children like this. And so parents, if your kids happen to, uh, you know, act like kids in here today, don't be embarrassed, right? This is family time. Y'all, I have three kids under five years old in my house, and I've been quarantined with them for five straight months. So I promised your kids could not distract me even if they tried, right? These have been my working conditions for the last few months. <laughs> so unless your kids are going to run around in his underwear while being chased by his brother there in a dragon costume, your kids are not going to phase me, right? Don't be embarrassed. We're glad to have our kids there. Second, uh, for those of you who still can't gather with us physically because it would be unwise for you to do so, uh, we just want you to know that we understand and we love you and we support you and we're not going to forget about you. In fact, if we could get everyone here in the front, could you turn to that camera right there? We've got a bunch of people watching on live stream right now. And could you just wave to them and say good morning? Good morning, online campus. We're not going to forget about you. Our online campus is alive and well, and it will be indefinitely. And obviously, the situation remains very fluid. So just make sure that you pay attention to whatever communication we put out. But that's all I'm going to say about it for now, because honestly, I am so sick and tired of talking about COVID. Anybody else? Just, just, I, I got COVID fatigue, so we're going to talk about Jesus a little bit if that's okay. Um, today we're starting a new series called How to Be, right? And we start out what I think is going to be a really refreshing and helpful and enlightening series with a few unbelievable statistics and a story, all right? So let's jump in. So as many of you are aware, Thomas Edison invented the light bulb in... 1879, I believe, yes, 1879, and the light bulb reinvented human life in a very profound way, and can't, you could make the case that the light bulb was a more profound invention than even things like the airplane, the atomic bomb, and maybe even more revolutionary than Netflix. Maybe it's very close, but you could make a case it's more revolutionary than even Netflix, and so here's what we're going to do. we got a question for crowdsourcing, the way this works is if you get this right, you win a t-shirt, a t-shirt we got made up specifically for this. If you're watching online, if you're the first person to comment with the right answer, you get this t-shirt. Uh, here's the t-shirt. It says, um, love God, love people, love naps. Okay, so here's the question. It'll make sense to you. The average American now gets seven hours of sleep a night. Okay, How much sleep did the average person get before Edison invented the light bulb. If you think you know, raise your hand. We'll bring a microphone to you. This is the first one I saw, right here, right in the front. We got a mic coming to you. Okay, you can come on up. <laughs> How much sleep did the average person get before Edison invented the light bulb? 
10. That is so close. You're just such a handsome guy. I'm going to give you this shirt anyways. You can go down. The answer is not 10, though. Can we have another try? Another try right here. Right here in the front. 12. Also very close, but not correct. Let's try to split the difference, somebody. One more guess. How many hours of sleep? Maybe I gave you a hint. Right here in the front. Eleven, context clues, very good. Eleven hours of sleep. The average human got eleven hours of sleep before Edison invented the light bulb. So I don't know, do any of you ever feel like chronically tired? Like, like maybe you're getting about half of the sleep you need? Well, now you know why. You're, you're literally getting half of the sleep that you need. And it makes a little bit of sense when you think about it because, you know, once the sun went down before there were light bulbs, what were we going to do? Burn all your candles reading a book? On a related note, that's also why parents had many more kids back then because once the sun went down, there really wasn't a lot to do. Now, back in 1965, the United States Congress, Congress, okay, called a very special meeting to discuss a very serious matter. Now, due to incredible advances in technology, experts were predicting that our work would soon become so efficient that we'd all only be working 15 hours a week, right? Experts believed that technology would soon reach a place where we could get everything we needed done in just 15 hours a week, a two-day Work week. Does that sound good to anybody else? Two-day work week sounds nice to me. And so all the brightest minds in the country got together because they were worried that we wouldn't know what to do with all of our new free time. Right? Here's how the scientist Julian Huxley put it. This was back in the 30s. He says, when we reach the point when the world produces all the goods that it needs in just two days, as it inevitably will, we must turn our attention to the great problem of what to do with our new leisure. And so all these smart people, <clears throat> they were right when they suggested that technology would make human work much easier and efficient. And they were right when they suggested this meant we would not have to work near as much. But they were brutally wrong in assuming that this would all result in more free time. And in fact, the exact opposite thing has occurred. And the average American now works four weeks more a year than they did 40 years ago. You work a month, a year more than your grandparents or great-grandparents. Right, so next time they're telling you that you're soft or something like that, you tell them, listen, old man, I work a month, a year more than you did. And so how in the world did that happen? It's astonishing. Well, it's really pretty simple. Over the last 50 or so years, we have all collectively and individually been given a choice where we can work way less, way less, and maintain our standard of living, or we can work way more and buy more. And again, and again, and again, and again, and again, and again, we have chosen to work more and buy more. We have chosen more work and more stuff over more time. And that brings us to one last cluster of statistics. Americans are now 10 times more likely to suffer from unipolar depression, that's depression with no clear cause, just cause, than they were 50 years ago. 
All right, so over the last 50 years, we've been busy working more so we can buy more, and now we're 10 times more likely to suffer from depression. Hmm. The use of antidepressants is up 400% since 1990, and the fastest growing market for antidepressants is actually among preschoolers. Preschoolers. Is that not the saddest statistic you've ever heard? Yeah, what does a preschooler have to be depressed about except getting an orange instead of a red, you know, popsicle with their snack? We're sick, y'all. And we're in the middle of an epidemic, an epidemic that was here long before COVID. And it'll still be here long after COVID's gone. And do you know what we're sick with? We're sick with something that mental health professionals are calling hurry sickness. Hurry sickness. And I'll tell you what hurry sickness is, but you already know. Hurry sickness is pathological busyness, a condition in which we find ourselves with more and more to do and less and less time to do it. How do you know if you have hurry sickness? Well, here are a few symptoms, right? First symptom, triple-digit unread messages in your email inbox. Have you seen that? Someone on our staff whose name may or may not begin with Jordan might have that. I won't say anymore. Here's another symptom. Moving checkout lines, right? Because that line looks faster. I could save 15 seconds if I run over there to that line. Multitasking to the point that you forget essential tasks. What am I doing here? Oh, I left my two-year-old in the car. Picking up your phone to scroll, text, or post every spare moment. Because heaven forbid you just sit there with nothing to do. The last symptom, being a human. If you're a modern human, you probably have hurry sickness. No nasal swab needed to confirm. You got it. And we'll leave it here because I, I doubt most of us need much convincing. Most of us know down deep in our bones that our lives have picked up too much speed. You know, we try to play it cool like we're this guy sipping champagne on the roller coaster, reading a little bit of Dickens. But on the inside, we're a little bit more like this little boy, yeah? Where are the brakes? They told me being an adult was going to be fun. It's not fun. All right, we're going fast, and we know that. But what we're perhaps not as clear on is that our hurry sickness is not just a problem, but rather our hurry sickness is sin. It's a sin. In fact, it's a very serious sin, maybe the most serious sin for many of us. Dallas Willard was a Christian philosopher who taught at USC for years and years and years. Listen to the way he puts this. I love this quote. He says, hurry is the great enemy of spiritual life in our day. You must ruthlessly eliminate hurry from your life. And I think Dallas Willard was right. I think hurry is the great enemy of the spiritual life in most of our lives because most of us just don't have the time to follow Jesus very well. You know, I mean, we would like to, and we sincerely do our best with the time and energy that we have, but we just really don't have much time and energy for following Jesus. we got too much else going on. And so how do we ruthlessly eliminate the hurry that is making us sick, that is making our children sick, literally sick? 
How do we learn how to be, period? And not just how to be busy. All right, that's what this series is about. That's what we're going to explore. If you've got your Bibles, turn to Matthew 11. We'll read verses 25 through 30. It'll be on the screen for you as well. Matthew 11, verses 25 through 30. Now at that time, Jesus said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and intelligent, and you've revealed them to infants. Yes, Father, for this way was well-pleasing in your sight. And all things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, nor does anyone know the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son wills to reveal him. I'll pay attention here in verse 28. Now come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden, it's light. Matthew 11, 25 through 30. So here in Matthew 11, we've caught Jesus in a moment of frustration. He's been traveling around doing his thing, but people are struggling to accept him. So in his frustration, he prays, he processes the situation with his father. And as we listen in, we hear some remarkably good news. Jesus says, Father, I'm, I'm frustrated, you know, but I understand that you've hidden these things from those who think they're wise and you've revealed them to infants, to people who don't take themselves so seriously all the time and know they need a little bit of help. And then Jesus utters three sentences. Now, three sentences that, no kidding here, no preacher hyperbole, three sentences that will change your life if you can learn how to receive them. In many ways, this whole series is about learning how to receive these three sentences. Okay, I want you to listen to them. We're not going to put them on the screen because I want you to just listen to them. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke, it's easy, and my burden it's really light. Breathe it in. Now, in context here, it's clear that Jesus has the Pharisees in mind. Because later on in Matthew, here's what he'll say about them. Matthew 23, verse 4. It says, They, the Pharisees, they tie up heavy burdens and lay them on men's shoulders, but they themselves are unwilling to move them with so much as a finger. As you might be aware, Jesus was constantly feuding with the Jewish religious authorities because he felt they practiced a very, very cruel form of religiosity that burdened down people with all these rules and used guilt as the primary motivator. And so notice what Jesus has done here. He says, look, you guys think that religion is primarily about God getting people to serve him. It's God using guilt to make people do what God wants. But you've got it all backwards here. You see, true religion, healthy religion, it's not God using rules and guilt to make people serve him, but rather it's God freeing people from cruel rules and unhealthy forms of guilt so that God can serve people. And I know that might sound a little bit strange. I'm going to double down, triple down, quadruple down here, okay? The primary reason God created you was not so that you could serve God, 
but so that God could serve you. I'm going to say this again. The primary reason God created you was not so that you could serve God, but so that God could serve you. You see, some of us are under the impression that God needs something from us. You know, that God needs us to, to run errands for him and praise him and compliment him, tell him his hair's great, he must have lost a few pounds in quarantine. And so we need to get really clear on this, okay? God does not need you to do anything, nothing. I love the way the psalmist puts it in Psalm 50. Listen to this. It's God talking. He says, look, I, I don't reprove you for your sacrifices and your burnt offerings are continually before me. Man, I'm not going to take a young bull out of your house nor melt goats out of your folds. For every beast of the field is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. Listen, man, I know every bird of the mountains and everything that moves in the field is mine. So if I were hungry, I wouldn't tell you about it. For the world is mine and all that it contains. God says, look, I don't need anything from you. I created the whole world out of nothing one day just because I felt like it. I am very resourceful. don't need you to do anything. And so, yes... Of course we serve God, right? Don't walk out of here saying, well, Austin said we didn't serve God today. No, we do serve God. But we only serve God because God first serves us. And we serve God best when we remember that God does not need us to do anything. And this is why when Jesus invites people to come follow him, he doesn't try to motivate us with guilt. Have you ever noticed that? A lot of preachers do, but Jesus never did. Right? Jesus doesn't say, hey, come to me, all you who are ambitious and have a guilty conscience. Because I've got a lot of stuff that you can do that will take you from the red to the black. What Jesus says? No. No, rather than using guilt to motivate us, Jesus uses rest to motivate us. Isn't that remarkable? Jesus says, hey... Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, not because I got stuff I need you to do, but because I got something to give you. That's the way this relationship works. And that something is rest. Because if your life is heavy and hurried, you're doing it wrong. And it doesn't have to be this way. And does that sound like good news to anybody else? Does it sound like good news to you? Does it sound like good news to me? That Jesus turns to tired, exhausted people and he says, hey, come over here. Come get a rest. Come let me help you with that. Let me help you catch a breath. During a very stressful season in my life, I remember talking to a mentor of mine, complaining about all the stress I had and all the responsibilities. And he says to me, Austin, um, <clears throat> Jesus said that his burden was light, right? And I was like, well, Allegedly. And he said, well, if Jesus said that his burden was light and what you're carrying around every day is really heavy, don't you think that maybe means you're carrying around some stuff that Jesus has not asked you to carry? I think that's the way that math works, right? So let me ask you, if Jesus said his burden is light, and he did, we just read it, and what you're carrying around is heavy, don't you think that means you're carrying some stuff that Jesus has not asked you to carry? But here's the dilemma, right? We may know that we're carrying heavy burdens that Jesus has not asked us to carry, 
but we don't really know how to stop carrying them. Right? I mean, most of you know, you know that walking around with crushing anxiety about your family, your friends, your job, your spouse, your dog, whatever, that that's not what Jesus wants for you. You know that. But that doesn't mean you know what to do about it, because if you knew what to do about it, you probably wouldn't be walking around with crushing anxiety, right? It's like when you're anxious and you tell somebody and they're like, hey, why don't you just stop worrying? And you're like, oh, I hadn't thought of that. That is so remarkable. Do you bill for your hours? Where's that switch that I can turn off and just get rid of the worry? And so Jesus, <clears throat> Jesus knows that we don't really know how to rest, even if we know that we need rest. And so in addition to inviting us to rest, Jesus tells us how to do it. All right, verse 29, here's what he says. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. That's how you do it. Take my yoke on you. And learn from me. And this, this seems like strange advice. Um, for those of you who perhaps haven't done a lot of farming lately, um, a yoke is a wooden beam that would go on the shoulders of oxen. There's a picture of it. That would connect them and help them pull in the same direction, which is to say that a yoke is an instrument of work and manual labor. And so why is Jesus inviting tired people to work and manual labor. Seems a bit odd, yeah? Here's how the New Testament scholar Frederick Bruner puts it. I love this quote. He says, look, a yoke is an instrument of work. Thus, when Jesus offers a yoke, he offers what we might think tired workers need least. Man, they need a mattress or a vacation, not a yoke. But Jesus realizes that the most restful gift he can give the tired is a new way to carry life a fresh way to bear responsibilities. Realism sees that life is a succession of burdens and we can't get away from all of them. Thus, instead of offering escape, Jesus offers equipment. I love that line. Not escape, but equipment. In other words, this light burden that Jesus offers is less about carrying less and it's more about learning how to carry properly. Right? The light burden Jesus offers is less about carrying less, and it's more about learning how to carry properly. Because newsflash, I know this is going to be big news for a lot of you, but newsflash, life is hard. Can I get an amen? It's hard. Life is hard, man. And there are heavy things that have got to be carried. The formation of your children, your financial well-being, justice for the poor and the oppressed, those things must be carried. And you don't get to, to just, you know, abdicate responsibility because it's too heavy. I hear parents tell me sometimes, well, my kids are just so hard, having kids so hard. I'm like, well, should have thought that before you had kids. Yeah, I, I, who, who's responsible for them? Me, the government? You're responsible for kids. That is part of the deal. And so when Jesus says, look, take my yoke upon you, what he's saying is, hey, Quit carrying all this stuff on your own and come get under my yoke with me because there are some heavy things that need carrying in this life. Kids, finances, justice, they got to be carried. But you come over here with me, come under here, and I'll do the heavy lifting. I got big, broad shoulders. The whole universe can fit on them. There's plenty of room under here. And so here's the paradox. Rest requires some work. All right, rest, rest requires some work. And you know this. Have you ever been on a vacation? 
that was supposed to refresh you, but instead it left you utterly exhausted because you were mentally preoccupied the whole time, maybe every vacation you've ever been on? Have you ever come home from work in body, but not in spirit, because your mind stayed at the office? Have you ever had a weekend full of leisure that left you utterly drained because you spent the entire weekend passively consuming empty calorie foods, empty calorie friendships, and empty calorie media? Well, of course you have, because you and I rest in a hurry just like we do everything else in a hurry. Which brings us to one last paradox. You're never less free than when you're doing whatever you want. You're never less free than when you're doing whatever you want. Now, according to the modern notion of freedom, you're free so long as you're doing what you want to. That's a very shallow understanding of freedom that's nowhere to be found in Scripture because in Scripture, you're not free if you're doing whatever you want. No, you are free if you are being who God says. That's what freedom is in Scripture, not doing what I want, but being who God says. The man who abandons his family in order to start a carefree new life with a shiny new mistress is not free, but is a coward. A coward who is in bondage to his selfishness and spinelessness. He ain't free, man. He's just traded masters for a little while. Many of our lives have picked up too much speed and they're out of control. Precisely and paradoxically, because we're free to do whatever we want. But you're never less free than when you're doing whatever you want. No, you're free when you have submitted to the easy yoke of Christ. That's freedom. So let's end with this. A lot of us ended up here at the Vista, you know, because we were exhausted by all the rules and guilt, and we were looking for some rest and some freedom. And that's good. That's good. But I've noticed something over the years, and I've noticed it primarily in myself. You know, I walked away from cruel forms of religiosity that major in rules and guilt and minor in freedom and rest a long time ago, and I ain't going back. I don't know about you, but I'm not going back. You have to drag me back. I'm not going back willingly. But I've also learned that making up Christianity on my own every day is every bit as exhausting as rules and guilt. Because I don't like to be told what to do all the time. I'm a stubborn Texas boy. But you better believe it. Got an amen on that. I don't like to be told what to do all the time. But you better believe that I need to be told what to do from time to time. And you do too. And so the pattern I've observed in myself and so many others over the years is this. Those who burn out on spiritual legalism eventually burn out on spiritual libertarianism. Those who burn out on the legalism, they burn out on the other things sooner or later because the only thing worse than being told what to do all the time is making it all up on your own all the time. You weren't made to do that, and that's not what following Jesus is about. And so that's what we're going to discover and explore for the next few weeks, how to heal our hurry sickness by submitting to Jesus' easy yoke. 
how to form rhythms of rest and habits of slowing that teach us how to be. How to be the children of God that Jesus says we already are. Let's pray together. Gracious God, thank you for today. We're so grateful to be together, be it in person or online. It is good to be with our brothers and sisters and give you our attention. We come before you and confess that we are a busy people and we love it. We love being busy. We love it. It makes us feel about ourselves. But we also suspect deep down that it's doing something really tragic. We see it in our own hearts. We see it in our children. And so we confess that our hurry is a sin. We confess we just don't have the time and energy for you because we got too much else going on. And we know it, but we really don't know what to do about it. It just feels like, you know, the roller coasters, it's going down the dip, and it is what it is at this point. But it doesn't have to be that way. Help us this morning to hear afresh that invitation from Jesus to come find some rest. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.